T would tell you he is a math and physics nerd. But his LinkedIn profile tells a different story, one about a multi-time founder who currently serves as the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Moogsoft. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Phil explains how he went from studying theoretical physics to finding a place in the tech industry, and then taking off from there. He dives into the big operational problems Moogsoft is trying to solve with AI, and he shares all the lessons he has learned through founding multiple companies. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have, on the other line, Phil, what's going on? Well, a normal Monday. So, you know, I've already been up and down the length of the peninsula uh, meeting customers and prospects. And, um, you know, the, the day starts early for me with a company that is spread across um, eight time zones and two continents. You know, you have to be up with the uh, up with the lock. <laughs> Indeed. Um, we're going to get into what you're building at Moogsoft, your backgrounds, and AI ops, which is really, really interesting. But first, how did you get into technology in the first place? Oh, that's a, 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 an interesting question. You know, um, I was growing up in the, I guess, the, you know, the start of the, the PC revolution um, in the 1980s. And, you know, technology just started to be a thing. In fact, you know, my first encounter with a computer was something inside of a wooden box that my maths teacher had, um, you know, constructed um, and brought into uh, a math class to, you know, to show off. So, you know, computers started to become a thing um, in my early teenage years. But my interest was always more in the pure science uh, side of things. In fact, um, you know, my very early life, uh, I was an academic theoretical physicist of all things. But computers were the, the tool that you used to analyze data and I acquired you know, quite a lot of, uh, of skills as a programmer, um, I guess, uh, almost osmotically. And you know, when I made a big life change and decided that uh, you know, I wanted to go out and earn an honest living, it was kind of natural that the software industry was where I you know, gravitated towards and ended up. And I got a couple of random jobs uh, out of college you know, found my way uh, to the industry in which I spent the last 30 years of my life and, you know, felt immediately in love and at home and have stayed there ever since. So after you got into technology and you started working, did you ever think that you'd be kind of a serial founder starting a bunch of companies? <laughs> no. In fact, actually, I, it, the, nothing could have been further from my mind. You know, I had in my mind's eye that it, you know, I was going to spend some time um, in the computer industry and then eventually find my way back into, you know, academic research. And, you know, the whole company founding thing, you know, I had no idea uh, what was involved in it. It wasn't anywhere near my, my sort of experience set. Having said that, I guess my, my dad left a kind of a full-time job to, you know, to open and run his own grocery stores, a uh, little mini chain. So maybe, maybe the entrepreneurial sort of urge was, somewhat in the DNA, somewhere along the line. But no, I, I never 
thought I would be doing what I'm doing today. And I still think that the serial company founding thing was almost a necessary consequence of what I wanted to do with technology rather than the end in itself. Yeah, it's so funny how that works, right? You see you see that little uh, blip of entrepreneurship early in your life, and maybe it just plants something in there that you don't know until happens later. Um, I, I, I want you to uh, to explain why you wanted to found Moogsoft and, and kind of what's the state? What's the state of uh, how the company's doing right now? So, um, you know, but kind of almost going in, in, in reverse order. I mean, the company is doing fantastically well. I mean, you know, we're a, you know, an out and out um, success story, you know, growing at, um, you know, pretty close to, um, you know, 75, 80% a year. Um, and, you know, our future, I would say, is hopefully to realize the, the vision of the company at the beginning, which was to become the, the serial leader and disruptor in the AI space across multiple categories. And, you know, it, it's kind of interesting. You know, there's really a story at the beginning of Moogsoft of needing to do the company to solve a problem which we felt was, um, you know, completely unaddressed and extremely important. And, and also, to be fair, you know, opportunity, um, you know, met need. So to, to kind of put a little bit of substance to, um, to that comment, um, I've been in the same industry for 30 years. We've been trying to build systems to, you know, to help people um, make sense of their digital infrastructure really since um, I, I co-founded my first company at Micromuse. Um, but what happened in the kind of the late part of the last decade was, you know, I'd started an incubator with uh, my co-founder at, at Moogsoft to investigate how we could use natural language processing, kind of the AI of its era and the origin of all the machine learning stuff um, across many different use cases, particularly, um, you know, we had done a couple of experiments in the, in the service assurance space that AI sits. And we became aware that a lot of our customers were running into the same problems when they were trying to use the old-fashioned legacy tools that they just couldn't cope with the amount of change and the degree of complexity in their environment. And, you know, as a result of which they, you know, they had to throw bodies at the problem. And we figured that we had the solution with AI and machine learning. And we set out to try and use AI and machine learning to solve that problem. Starting the company and getting Moogsoft off the ground was the, the, if you like, the necessary evil in which to experiment to see whether or not we could disrupt and we could, um, you know, get a, a product that could be used by customers to tackle that problem. Yeah. And speaking of, you know, the company doing well, you were recently named one of the best workplaces uh, for 2018 by Inc. Magazine. You have, you know, been featured in TechCrunch and a bunch of other places. Um, but one of the things that that I just found so fascinating and why we want to dive you on the show is this idea of like AI ops. Um, what What is this thing? Uh, is this different than IT operations? Is it something that's similar, augmented? What, what, what are we talking about here? It's really the next generation of IT operations. Um, and, and, and the AI in the title is artificial intelligence. Now, you know, I, I could bore uh, about the distinction between artificial intelligence and machine learning. And, you know, in, in, in all truth, AI and machine learning tend to get used uh, interchangeably and you are meaning typically the same thing. Um, in the industry when you use either term. But, but fundamentally, it's this. 
If you think about what has happened to infrastructure, um, whether it's applications, um, public cloud, you know, network, whatever it is, the complexity and the scale of it has gone through many orders of magnitude change over the last um, you know, 30 years. And specifically, the public cloud containers, virtualization, all of the elastic uh, digital enterprise that we all live in today has taken it past a point of no return. And that point of no return is where a human being can grok it. A human being can get their head around it and understand how to you know, keep it all running and pointing in the same direction. And AI is a, essentially a tool um, to automate and control a system that has just got you know, effectively an infinite number of degrees of freedom has become so complex and so fast changing that trying to sort of make some you know, human uh, model of it, a rules-based system or a, a kind of a behavioral model is really not sufficiently accurate enough or capable or powerful enough to sort of put shape and form around turning the business mission of availability into the individual actions of what a technical person needs to do to the systems uh, to keep them um, available and keep them running well. So I see IT ops as becoming AIOps. So the entirety of all of the use cases in IT ops will be addressed by an AI enhanced equivalent. So, you know, you might pick problem management, uh, trouble tickets um, in the most sort of vernacular sense. There will be intelligent ticketing systems that are driven by AI, both as the point of contact between the system and the consumer, and both in, in terms of the way in which, you know, knowledge bases are, are leveraged to help resolution. Whether it's orchestration, how do I get my application deployed? There will be an AI equivalent to the traditional orchestration uh, tools. And of course, in our particular speciality, you know, MOOCSOS AI Ops is an AI-enabled equivalent to legacy systems you know, that use rules-based approaches that range from the very old, like my old company, Micromuse, to actually some of the newer entrants that claim to be something that they frankly aren't. They're just essentially net call in the cloud. And, and who are the types of folks that you're working with? Are you working directly with CIOs and CTOs? Are you working with COOs? Like what's, what's kind of the, when you sit down with a customer, who are those people and what are they looking to solve? So it, it depends on the customer. And yes, we do spend a lot of time talking to CIOs and CTOs, heads of operations, people who are responsible for um, service availability um, is very, very key. Um, but, you know, some of those terms are rooted in, you know, maybe a more enterprise way of, of, of looking at how um, digital infrastructure is managed and maintained. If you move over to the more kind of, e-commerce digital economy type businesses like um, you know gaming companies like Ubisoft and GoDaddy Yahoo and so on you know there they take much more of a Google style SRE approach to um, service availability the kind of the classic sort of DevOps setup and there it can be you know heads of engineering uh, because you know all of a sudden engineering has responsibility for service availability um, but, but fundamentally, what they have in their job title is, you know, they're the people whose organizations are on the line to make sure that when a customer turns up to the new digital 
storefront that they can do business with the company that they represent. Yeah, that makes sense. It's got to be kind of interesting that over the years, how much your time has shifted spending with strictly IT professionals versus maybe more people, or maybe I'm totally off base there. Um, I'm curious, like how much time do you feel like, you know, in your, in the early days with your other companies, you were working directly with IT? Oh, I, I think that's very perceptive. Um, you know, if you go back to the days of Micromuse, um, you know, it was almost uh, entirely IT. In fact, it was, I may even go further and say it's pretty much 100% IT. And it's really only in the last 10 years, maybe a little bit longer, um, that there's been, you know, quite the focus on DevOps and DevOps-related um, functions. And so, you know, with that, you do find yourself um, dealing with heads of engineering. So, you know, if I was to try and put a number on it, I'd probably get the proportion wrong, but I'm going to guess and say around about a third of the people that we speak to are more kind of SRE, devops type um, folks. And part of the reason for that is actually the world is moving in that direction. So, you know, we have enterprise customers that are organizing themselves increasingly like a software company. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I feel like so many people are organizing like that, right? I mean, that's part of the, every company is a technology company now. Yeah. Um, it, it is a huge part of that, right? Uh, it categorically is, yeah, categorically. And so whether you're in healthcare, whether you're a bank or, you know, whatever it is, your digital in infrastructure is, you know, obviously completely different. Um, and so do you feel like as you're talking about AI ops that this is something new that people fundamentally don't understand? Do you feel like they're confused about how they're going to use AI or how like IT operations is going to change? Like, I'm curious, what, what are some of those kind of, you know, pain points or things that people are worried about? So a couple of years ago, I think that was absolutely the case. Um, there, there really was a lot of, um, you know, confusion as to, um, you know, as to how um, people were going to make that transition. And it was actually, I'll be honest, one of the reasons why I was instrumental in, in, in founding with a couple of other industry figures and, um, and customers, the AI Ops Exchange. And in fact, in the inaugural meeting last year, it was, it was okay, we need to get together, um, you know, to establish and promulgate best practice because one thing's for sure, you know, it will change uh, how people work over a period of time. And, you know, we're busy, you know, on that journey to try and kind of quantify and assess uh, what that boils down to. But it's less so. Um, I would say that in, you know, a good proportion in excess of half of the engagements that we have with prospects, AI ops is a buying category now. There is mm. an AI ops project underway. And, and in fact, actually, I said I was up and down the peninsula today talking to prospects and, and the like. Actually, one of the ones I was in today, they, you know, the project is an AI ops project. They set about trying to work out how to deploy AI ops in their environment. And we were part of the bake-off and, you know, it looks very much like we've, uh, we've won them as a customer. And, you know, hopefully uh, down the line, we'll be able to talk about them as a customer. So, um, you know, it was, it was a fun meeting. Um, so very much more so today, it's a category that people buy against. That's really fascinating. I mean, what do you, where does it go from here? You know, there is a dam which is beginning to you know, leak, in my view. I think if you look at the investment 
across the enterprise in service assurance software over the last you know, couple of decades, you are probably talking a fairly substantial, multiple, double-figure, billions of dollars amount of investment. It may even be a three-figure, billions of dollars amount of investment. And all of that is, is quite frankly, um, going to be recycled. And I think that there is going to be, over the course of the next five to 10 years, an opportunity for a company that is attentive to its customer needs and willing to genuinely innovate as opposed to, you know, to jump the bandwagons, you know, to take a leadership position in that market. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, I'm so excited about uh, the prospects for my company, Moogsoft, is that I, I, I realize I'm very conscious of the fact. In some senses, it's a, almost a kind of a, 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 an onerous obligation that we have a lead, leadership position in that market, an opportunity to be that company, and frankly, an obligation to get there for our customers. And the reason why I say an obligation is because I know, because I run the company, that our commitment to innovation in this space is genuine, vigorous, and you know, supported from the board all the way down through myself. I don't think that that is a true statement for all the players in this market. I think there's a lot of opportunists and the customers will not benefit from being customers of an opportunist in this market. Switching gears to you as a founder, you know, what are what are some of the things that when you started OTT, you know, back in the 90s, like how have you evolved as a founder? How has creating a company evolved? I'm really curious, like what are some of the lessons learned over the, over the companies that you founded over the years? So, so a big question. Um, I know it's a loaded question, but. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's funny. Uh, it, so, I mean, you know, personally as an individual, I mean, you know, there's some of your experiences and, you know, I think things change so frequently that it would be wrong for me to say that, you know, I've acquired some sort of, you know, wisdom of Solomon over, over the decades. And, you know, now I know the answers to more questions than uh, I knew beforehand, because as fast as you have answers to questions that are new ones appear. Um, and I'm, I'm a strong believer in, you know, it's a test of character rather than a test of knowledge. How well, you know, you meet the challenge of a new company. So, you know, maybe, I've learned to be a little bit more patient than I was when I was a young man. Uh, maybe I've learned to think maybe twice before I make decisions rather than believe in my first instinct. Um, sometimes that did used to get me into trouble um, back then. And, and, and I've also learned very much that the single most important thing that a company has is its culture. And pretty much everything else is secondary, you know, because we're, people-based industry. And, and ultimately, Moogsoft is the product of the efforts and the passions and the energies of, you know, the 230-odd people that make up the business today. Um, and it's not about Phil T. Um, I'm just a team member, you know, maybe with a special responsibility to remind people of that. It's actually the culture of the company that supports and attracts the right people to deliver what it is that we're trying to deliver. But you know, um, the, the funny thing is you're talking about starting companies. I was uh, actually joking about this with somebody the other day. 
So let's say you and I decided that we had a great idea for a, for a technology business and we're going to get a company off the ground. In the time it takes to do this interview, we could have a company formed. Um, we could have a website up. Um, we could knock up a prototype of some attractive UI and have all the necessary equipment, you know, computer, um, it would be a cloud instance now, obviously with Amazon, you know, a bank account. We'd have all of that stuff would happen, you know, at the speed of the click of a button. I remember when starting a company, you know, there was a hardware order that you placed and you'd wait three weeks for it to arrive, right? Um, you know, and it would come in boxes and cost a lot of money. Um, and you would have to have capital to start a company. And, you know, when you formed the actual legal entity of the company, you got something in the UK, and there was an equivalent in the US, uh, of a thing called a company kit that included, a, of all things, a seal, right? You had this thing, an official seal, um, that would leave an embossed kind of um, circular thing with the name of the, the company. Yeah, totally. And, and, and it was kind of wacky. In some senses, I kind of do occasionally get nostalgic for that kind of, uh, for that kind of stuff. But the point that I'm making was that the speed of innovation was tied to some physical things that kind of have like a natural terminal velocity that they can move at. Whereas today, it's the speed of thought. You can have a brilliant idea, and for very little money, you can incorporate yourself, persuade maybe another couple of people to work for nothing, and build a prototype using essentially free materials, free tools, free um, access to compute resources, and be in business for you know the the price of a well, you know, price of a meal out in the Bay Area probably counts as capital these days, but um, but you know the price of a meal out and you're off and running. Um, whereas I think uh, not so much a Riversoft or an OT, uh, sorry, an OTT or a Microsoft story, but the Riversoft story, you know, my first hardware order was, you know, $40,000 worth of equipment. Wow. That's crazy. Which was kind of like, that was serious dough back then. Yeah. Well, and I think another thing too, just, I mean, it's all the little things, right? That, you know, everybody has a computer now, right? So if you're starting a startup, like you don't need to outfit your whole company with stuff. Like now, eventually down the line, you do need to do that. It's more of like a growth problem than it is a starting problem. But it's like all those little things um, you can do, you can pretty much use freemium tools or really cheap tools for almost every single like part of launching the business now, unless you're working on obviously like a hardware startup or, or something like that. It's totally different. But I sometimes say that the uh, you know the mainframe is probably the last bastion of undisruptible technology. So you know if you are selling a piece of mainframe software, the likelihood that a garage startup is going to turn up with the latest version of some Kicks application is slim to none. Right? I mean your your competitors are going to be other companies that can afford to have access to that kind of compute. And and you know people have forgotten that's how it used to be. You know, going back, you know, 20, 25 years even, that's how it was. You know, there was a barrier to entry. And, you know, entrepreneurism wasn't as democratic as it is now, uh, which I think is phenomenally exciting because it's bringing people into the entrepreneurial community that were frankly and shamefully previously excluded. Oh, for sure. You know, who don't come from a, you know, mom and dad could afford to send me to, um, you know, to MIT or, uh, you know, Oxford or Cambridge in the UK, you know, who maybe, you know, didn't um, have the, you know, uh, I'll just get a bunch of straight A's until I'm, you know, 
motivated enough to drop out of um, of Harvard and start Microsoft. Right? I mean, that's that was the old way. The new way is people who are much more in touch with maybe the communities in which they they grew up in and realize and understand and are able to you know act in relevance against um, you know against those needs and get into business and do wonderful things. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. I mean, it was, we always joke when we were founding Mission that. It was funny because like you talk about like raising a family and friends around and we were all like, well, all of our families are broke and all of our friends are broke. So there's not exactly, not exactly going to like pool family and friends money is, uh, is, is the equivalent to beer money. So, uh, you know, there's nothing there, but there's all sorts of like programs and different things that you can apply to now, um, you know, to be able to get that stuff, you know, and, and actually I'm curious. So, you know, you have a lot of, you know, advantages from being a multi-time founder that you could, you know, go to your investors and different people that saying like, hey, this is something that I think is going to be big. And then it kind of, you know, became a, a much bigger, like you said, it actually is essentially a budget item. But I'm curious, like, you know, in the early days, when it wasn't a budget item, when it wasn't something that people was a need to have, when it was a nice to have, um, how did you think about, you know, selling into, IT when IT was, you know, kind of at, at the height of its powers, but maybe not the height of its connection to the business, like a lot of CIOs and, and IT leaders are now. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, when I'm asked, um, about this by, um, people, what's the secret of being able to get into business? You know, there's, there's two things really. I mean, one is, one is always remember to be lucky because that certainly helps. Um, and, and if you can spend a bit of that luck, have good friends, so, you know, when I'm specifically the Riversoft experience, for example, I had a very good friend and he put some of his money on the line, you know, to help me kind of get over the, um, the hump of, you know, it costs capital those days to get going, but also use his reputation and access, you know, to get me into conversations with, you know, people who were capable of spending the money to become a customer in a way that, um, you know, allowed me to, you know, persuade them to, to back me. So um, I would say that it's really, there's no easy route at all. You, you have to be super persistent, yeah. passionate. You have to be prepared to be poor because, you know, that's the, it doesn't pay very well being an entrepreneur until it pays a lot. And, you know, you have to be, if it pays a lot, um, you have to be, um, you know, willing to take a lot of reverse and, you know, just keep going. Did you think that you wanted to start another company? Like, was this at this point you'd had, you know, two companies, like why then, um, you know, was it on to the next thing or how did that, how did that happen? Yeah, it was, it was kind of a version of the on to the next thing. Um, you know, actually NG was a subtly different business. It was the one thing in my background that wasn't really out and out service assurance. It was around um, intelligent policy for data. And actually, I learned all kinds of things at Engini, most of which I could summarize with, I really am not that interested anymore in storage. It kind of, uh, kind of convinced me of the fact that I much prefer um, service assurance. Um, in fact, the original idea for Engini is kind of crazy because we didn't get there, but lots of other people did. But this idea that, that a computer shouldn't be a physical thing and that your entire sort of compute profile should follow your identity around. And of course we, we didn't know it at the time, but we were kind of 
getting a, you know, we had an early thought that, that was very much in parallel with ideas of cloud computing and, and so on and so forth. And we, we looked at lots of problems that we could solve that would move you along that way. And the one that we thought we could do something with was profile data. So the idea being that, um, you know, in a very much more non-trivial way, you could have data spaces that are constructed around who you are, what you're doing, and where you're going kind of thing, as opposed to just static disk um, partitions that had a directory structure that you mounted, and that was that. And, you know, so we got going, got a company off the ground, and, you know, we acquired some customers. We built the business up a fair chunk. Um, the storage industry is just different to how um, service assurance worked. And there, there are, you know, sales cycles were much longer and uh, much more difficult to deal with. And, you know, fundamentally what it came down to was we, we decided that it was, it was not achieve, going to achieve scale as a startup company. And so Riverbed was in a better place to, to make sense of it. Yeah, no, it, it's so fascinating to me. And it's, it's such an interesting time kind of in the Valley, you know, it's a very different time than now, which is kind of where I was going with it was that just a, a, a funny, a funny slice in time where you had, you know, the perfect place for then you to create Moogsoft like after that. And I just kind of thought it was an interesting slice of time. Because really, you know, hitting, if you look back from, you know, 2012 to now, it's essentially been economic growth for seven straight years. Uh, so, you know, I, it's a much different selling time, longer sales cycles and all that sort of thing is okay when people are, you know, having better quarters every quarter. So, um, yeah. Anywho, I just I just thought it was an interesting, you know, timing. Even though it was only a few years difference, that a much different ecosystem. And also, for reference, I was based in London at the time when I was doing Engini. And one of the experiences that I walked away with from Engini was that you know, were I to do another you know growth startup um, gig, that I was going to make its headquarters in in Silicon Valley, um, come hell or high water. And it was you know top of the list of things that was going to be done with Mooksoft, when we started Mooksoft, the intention was always to bring, you know, the, 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 you know, the companies, um, over here. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm glad you say that. Okay. This will be the final question. Then we'll get in a lightning round. I, I'm, I'm super interested that you say that. Cause you kind of, we hear a little bit of the scuttlebutt these days about like starting a company and, and putting the headquarters in Silicon Valley, even though there are a ton of really good advantages to it and a ton of you know, disadvantages. Ultimately, your, your company is going to be headquartered wherever it is. Um, do you still think that that's important for certain companies to be here? So it's categorically the case that you can build a great company anywhere. You know, and I, I wouldn't wish to at all sort of back an idea or, or underline an idea that says, you, you know, to be any kind of success, you absolutely have to be here. But what I will say is that there is something utterly unique about Silicon Valley the network effect of just the pure concentration of, of smart, aggressive, available capital, smart, entrepreneurial talent, um, and the infrastructure, whether it's patent attorneys to, um, you know, short-term rental space, um, you know, I mean, literally everything you need to, to be the next Google is within a you know, a 30-minute um, drive from wherever you're based in the Bay Area 
and that is unique on planet Earth. And the effect of that is to remove some risk, some delay, alter the odds a tiny, tiny, tiny bit in your favor. And who doesn't want to do that? Now, remember, I don't know when the last time is that you went to Las Vegas, um, but, you know, I'm pretty sure that... Uh, too, too frequently. <laughs> too frequently. I'm pretty sure your house isn't as nice as some of the themed uh, casinos on the Strip, right? I mean, you know, every time you walk into a Venetian or a Wynn or wherever, you know, you look around, you go, you know, these guys spend a lot of money on marble. And, um, you know, it's a, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty swish kind of experience. That entire industry is based upon the fact that the casino owns zero on the roulette table. That's exactly right. So, you know, um, it's maybe it's just those tiny, tiny, tiny changes in percentages that work in your favor with being in Silicon Valley that for me, if I was making a decision about where to base a company that I was starting, I just wouldn't think any further. And sure, you know, the people are expensive, um, property is expensive, cost of living is expensive. You know, the staff is incredibly difficult to hire, very difficult to retain. Um, you know, the weather sucks if you're in San Francisco. How about that? An English guy saying the weather sucks. <laughs> you know, and so on and so on. And, and the traffic is horrendous and the absence of an integrated transport system. And, you know, da, 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 da. it doesn't matter. The network effect and the everything else makes this the best place in the world to build a technology company. Yeah, I think the interconnectedness between the people and the fact of how much collaboration happens here, I think is something you would never know unless you were here. Like it is the antithesis of Wall Street in many ways with regards to how people behave, in my opinion. You know, I grew up in Oakland, so uh, I, I didn't grow up in quote unquote Silicon Valley, but um, you know, after being gone for a long time and coming back here, that was the thing that really blew me away is like people want to solve hard problems and they just want to meet other smart people. Um, so that, that's, that's cool that you said that. But like, as you said at the top, like it doesn't really matter. And the thing that's great, the, the, my piece on this is that having a presence here is really important. Your whole company doesn't need to be here. You know, your employees can be remote. Like our company is, is fully remote, but we have a huge presence here. Um, and that's important for, for our network, but, uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Let's get into the lightning round. These questions are fast and easy, just like the lightning platform from Salesforce. You can go to salesforce.com slash employee experience to learn more about how you can improve employee experience at your company on the world's number one CRM. That is Salesforce. Check it out. Salesforce.com slash employee experience. Lightning round questions. Phil, are you ready? Yep. Number one. What app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? Uh, um, so actually, Dark Sky. Uh, you know, I'm a weather junkie. And, um, you know, so uh, and if I have a bit of an argument with my wife about what the best weather app is. But Dark Sky is fabulous. Great radar. Um, the time machine, which allows you to look at what the weather was like 30 years ago. I mean, it's just, you know, it's fun. Favorite vacation spot? Uh, favorite vacation spot, without a shadow of a doubt, is 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 Italy. Um, you know, uh, and if if possible, either in the mountains or on the coast, it's all awesome. Favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? I'm a big fan of Michel Houlebecq, and he's a kind of a cross. It's kind of a French version of Hunter S. Thompson, and uh, the possibility of an island is just an awe-inspiring book. What do you do for fun? 
Oh, crikey. Um, outside of, you know, I'm, I'm addicted to maths and physics, so I spend a lot of time playing with maths, but I ride my skateboard, ski, um, and enjoy cooking. Best advice for a first-time CEO? Listen. Love it. Final question. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um where can I wire the billion dollars? <laughs> I don't know. Um, it's such a difficult question. Never get asked. Um, I wish the Prime Minister of England would ring me up and ask me how to sort out Brexit because I've got one word for him. Cancel. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I love it, Phil. This has been awesome having you on. Um, excited to, uh, to to follow along with Mooseoft. And, uh, anything to plug? I know... Um, or by the time this is going to air, your uh, your user conference is going to be over. But uh, I, I know there's lots of ways for uh, for IT professionals uh, and users to plug into uh, what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the the user conference in, in Chicago, uh, late October twenty uh, seventh, twenty eighth, I think, off the top of my head, is obviously going to be a huge event for us. And you know, hit our website. There'll be some really huge announcements around new product introduction at that time. And come check it out. It's awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much. Take care. Take care. Bye. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.